welcome to Rewildology, the show that explores conservation, travel, and rewilding the planet. I'm your host, Brooke Mitchell-Norman, conservation biologist and adventure traveler. Oh, welcome back, everyone. I'm so insanely excited to be relaunching the show, and I promise it's going to be bigger and better than before. However, I don't want to waste any time getting to today's fantastic episode, and so be sure to stay tuned until after the interview with today's guests to hear the long list of exciting updates that we tackled while the show is offline for the month of August. It's summertime here in the Northern Hemisphere, and you or someone you know probably took a beach vacation to an island off the coast of somewhere beautiful, to quote the little-known country star named Kenny Chesney. (laughs) We daydream about islands, travel to islands, write songs about islands, and hope and pray to one day live on an island. Although islands only account for about 5% of the Earth's total landmass, they are some of the most biodiverse regions on the planet and are home to about 40% of all threatened vertebrate species. In addition, about 61% of the Earth's extinction events since the 1500s have occurred on islands. This begs the question, what is going on with our incredibly biodiverse islands? Why are they having such a hard time? And most importantly, how do we halt and eventually reverse the damage that's been caused over the past 700 years? To teach us all about conserving and restoring our islands, today we're sitting down with Dina Spatz, PhD, David Will, and Nick Holmes, PhD, the three leading scientists on the historic paper that was just released called The Global Contribution of Invasive Vertebrate Eradication as a Key Island Restoration Tool. In this massively important paper, these scientists synthesized over 100 years of invasive vertebrate eradications from islands and found that this type of intervention had an 88% success rate. Yes, an 88% success rate. It's rare that anything in conservation can give such a clear path forward. Dina, Dave, Nick, and I chat about a wide range of topics, including the history behind our island's decline, what's all involved in island conservation interventions, including eradications and restoration, how they created the novel database that's at the center of their historic paper, how to prevent future invasions from opportunistic species, and how we all can help save our islands. All right, friends, without further ado, here is my conversation with Dina, Dave, and Nick. Well, hi, Dave, Nick, and Dina. Thank you all so much for coming on the Rewildology podcast and exploring this insanely important topic with me that I cannot wait to dive really deep in. But first, you're brand new to the community. Please, let's start diving into each of your stories and exploring why you do what you do. So Dina, let's start with you. Could you take us through your story and how you got to where you are today? Yeah, sure. I'm Dina Spatz. I am a senior conservation scientist for a nonprofit called Pacific Rim Conservation. They're based in Oahu, Hawaii, although I'm in Sacramento, California. And I'm the lead author of the paper that we're talking about today about invasive species and eradications. But I guess my my journey to to here wasn't really direct. You know, I didn't 
intend to work on invasive species issues per se. I think I got very lucky in college or after college, I had a really awesome professor who was sort of helping me find my way. You know, I knew I was interested in nature and science and conservation, but what exactly was the question? And so as I was looking for, you know, my path, he introduced me to the Friday Harbor Labs, this research apprenticeship up in the San Juan Islands of Washington. And so he said, why don't you go up there and, and see what you discover, really? So I, I went there, I was a research apprenticeship and a research apprentice, sorry. And I was exposed to this amazing coastal marine environment just off the San Juans. And we were looking at, you know, plankton and oceanography and seabirds. And that is where I eventually found my passion. I was on these research vessels monitoring seabirds and I watched MERS diving underwater and then flying into the air and I just thought oh my gosh these are really incredible creatures you know I want to learn more so you know after after doing this program I looked into you know jobs working with seabirds essentially birds that you know use the marine environment but also like require land to breathe these really weird groups of animals and so just over time I took different jobs working with these birds and learning more and more about them and their natural history. And of course, you know, once you start diving into a certain group of animals, you start learning about their conservation status. And so I learned over time, you know, seabirds are this super cool, highly adaptive kind of bird, but they're really, really endangered. Um, they're one of the most endangered birds on the planet. Um, bird groups on the planet. And so I decided I wanted to go back to grad school just to become a conservation scientist, essentially. And by doing that, I got introduced to islands, really. And once you get introduced to islands and you're thinking about seabirds, it's very obvious what's starting to drive their extinction rates, and that's invasive species. And I know we're going to get deep into what they are and what we're doing to, to resolve this issue of invasive species on islands, but, you know, that's kind of the trajectory that took me there. Mm. Oh, that's a great story. It's just, I love exploring and how did these pieces fit together? How did you get to this paper being the first author on it? So then let's shift gears. Dave, what is your story? How did you get to, get to today and this work you're doing now? Yeah, thanks, Brooke. Thanks for having me. I'm Dave Will with Island Conservation. Um, Island Conservation is a global nonprofit that's focused on preventing extinctions on islands by removing invasive species. I've been with Island Conservation about 15 years now and uh, currently our head of innovation. And, you know, much like Dina, I came to this not knowing much of anything about islands or about invasive species. I probably, you know, I've been involved now in probably more than a hundred different interventions on islands. And I, before I started all this 15 years ago, I could have not put any of those places on a map. You know, if you asked me where any of these islands were, I didn't even know <laughs> And I also went to UC Santa Cruz for my undergraduate and kind of came from a, a bioinformatics background, so computer science and biology. And as I was going through my undergraduate, I was you know, a lot of that was very focused on molecular biology, which was interesting, but I had a real passion of having grown up outside and you know, work in nature a lot of real passion about conservation. And so I was looking for ways to apply kind of computer science and those sorts of things to ecological problems. And I happened to get an internship with Island Conservation, kind of my last quarter at Santa Cruz, just you know, using Google Earth to explore how can we communicate about Island, how can island conservation communicate about islands and share the work that they're doing? 
And through that and working with the staff there, I think I just had a really unique skill set in databases and programming that was you know, really fortuitous and that there was a couple of projects that needed some, some skills on the ground to be able to develop uh, mobile applications and tools to be able to collect information about how those eradications and interventions were happening. And so I just happened to be at the right spot at the right time and was fortunate to go out to Isla de la Plata. It was my first project out in Ecuador, protecting some seabird seabird colonies out there, bufa de boobies and, and, and other seabirds. And it was a really impactful experience for me to be out on those islands and spending several, you know, I think we were there for a month or two months out on the island every day, interacting with the island and getting to experience the seabirds. I remember clearly there was one bird in particular at the top of the island. There was kind of a gazebo shade structure that we would stop after hiking every day. And there was one masked booby that was hadn't learned to fly yet. And it would come over every morning and tap on my boots and kind of, you know, nibble on my toes and say hello. And I named it Goggles because it had this kind of <laughs> over it. And I got to experience the first time it flew. I was there long enough that every day it would come up and say hello. And then one day it decided to jump off the edge of the cliff and fly for the first time. And that was just, a, you know, one of the many impactful experiences of being out on these islands and being there long enough to be able to, to understand understand these island ecosystems and the kind of impacts that you can have by addressing the problem of invasive species. And I felt lucky to have been here for 15 years. And my role now is kind of how can we increase the efficiency of these interventions, increase the scale, the scope, and the pace, and looking at a whole different variety of methods to doing that. And you know, I come at this particular topic and paper from a couple of different backgrounds of having been involved in interventions, but also helping build the database to be able to track that. And excited to tell that story. So Again, thanks for having me. Did you tear up when that bird flew away? I would I have cried. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I would have cried so hard. Yeah. And it's it's one of I have a four year old son and it's one of my favorite stories to tell him. And he Aww. keeps asking me if can I go meet goggles someday? And I'm like, Yes, someday we'll help you. We'll, oh we'll my figure gosh. out a way. You can't meet goggles specifically, but we'll figure <laughs> out a way for you to meet someone like goggles. That kind of makes me want to cry. That's like so. That's just beautiful. Just even sharing these amazing experiences with your children and like watching it develop in them. And like, yes, we will go see goggles or their descendants, which is even more exciting. Oh, that's gorgeous. So, Nick, it's your turn. Please share your story with us as well. Hey, Brooke. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. My name is Nick Holmes. I'm the Associate Director for the Oceans Program for the Nature Conservancy here in California. And my story is not that different from, from Dina and Dave. It's just, you know, as a kid, uh, seeing places that sort of triggered something, reading National Geographic and Grandma and Grandpa's house, you know, seeing these images and realising that the islands were a place that I'd like to go and see. And then sort of during my undergraduate years I studied park management in Australia and there were opportunities to get to some of these places and some of the some of them were like Montague Island off the southeast coast of New South Wales and then later Macquarie Island in the sub-Antarctic and getting to these places and you could see that they really belong to the plants and the animals in a way that you don't see in a lot of other places in our modern world and so to be in amongst more seabirds. In this case, I studied penguins for a long time. And so to be in amongst sort of a, a cacophony of, of sound and smell and colour as, as these colonial seabirds, because if there's one, there's usually hundreds, 
and to see what really how how that part of the world operated and so it kind of gets under your skin it sets off a spark and you're really like oh wow this is pretty special and you kind of realize this is a rare moment and you get to see something as it should be if you like and for me, there were lots and lots of moments on islands where sitting amongst elephant seals or sitting amongst king penguins and being cold or being hungry, but realizing that this was this was a special place. And so you you kind of get addicted to that. And these special places, you you're like, okay, well, there's other special places as well. There's other islands around the world. And and for me, I, I did my doctorate at the University of Tasmania, and I, and by that time. I had met my future wife, a, a beautiful, remarkable, very tolerant American, and we moved to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And so in Hawaii, I started running a recovery program for some threatened seabirds, birds that feed at sea, but bred up in the mountains and they were burrowing petrels and really remarkable birds. And so I spent a lot of time uh, looking for these things. They were rare enough in the landscape that management didn't really know where all of them were or how to combat the threats. And when you start being on islands long enough, the threats start to become particularly evident. And they're quite common that one of the most dominant threats around the world are invasive species, particularly invasive mammals. And they've been brought there sort of accidentally or deliberately. And so when you start working on islands and you start be opening yourself up to these island stories, these island narratives, inevitably one of the characters becomes invasive species. They're either there and something needs to be done about it if we want to see benefit, or they're a risk and we want to prevent them from getting there. And so for me, this, this story of needing to see places and, and experience parts of the world really brought about career opportunities. And I, was, I find myself really fortunate to, to have had that and, and to have a tolerant wife that's, that's <laughs> that do those things. And now I'm here in California and I am really fortunate can, to work with people like Dave and with Dina and so many other people in the island community. It's, islands typically evoke quite small landscapes in most people's minds. However, there really is a global community. And so I feel really lucky to be, have connected to people from Portugal, from Spain, from South Africa, you, you name it. There's islands all around the world and there are consistent challenges and opportunities that these places bring. And so for us, this paper is also a celebration of that. It's a celebration of what happens on a small island, but at a global scale. And so it was really, really cool to be able to put that all together and, and to share it with you today. So thank you. Yes. And you started to drop a little hint about what is actually going on with our islands. And I know that all three of you have seen this firsthand, but could you maybe for someone who might not know exactly what's going on, or I'm not an island expert by any means, most of what I've studied has been on actual like landscapes on a terrestrial land. So could you maybe give us more information? Why are our islands having such a hard time? Wow. Well, let's... Let's start with a little bit of ecology, life history, natural history. And so islands are remote places. Think about Hawaii, think about French Polynesia, think about the Azores. These are places that are quite remote. 
And as a consequence of that, the natural history, the 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 evolution of species in these places, in this these places, has been very different. There's a, a remarkably high endemism on islands. And when you look at plant endemism and you look at vertebrate endemism, the richness on islands is about 10 times greater than what mm. you see on the mainland. Wow. And it's because of that, this these evolutionary processes where ancestors or some something has come and brought a founding population where whether it's a seed or whether it's a bird and it's allowed new species uh, they take hold and it allows new species to evolve and adapt and radiate and you know some classic examples are of course the Galapagos with finches but also if you go to Hawaii for example there were 50 Hawaiian honeycreepers a honeycreeper is a small bird that they've evolved in this beautiful marriage with plants where they they pollinate different plants and their bills and their beaks have evolved to the shapes of the flowers, lobeliads and things like this. They all evolved from a single species ancestor, probably a Cardawine finch that somehow got there, maybe by storm or maybe by strong winds, some event allowed it to get there and to take hold. And then this radiation occurs. And now we have species that occur nowhere else in the world. And the other part that happens with islands, if you think about this, it kind of makes sense. If you go to a place like New Zealand, for example, there are no native land mammals. The exceptions are bats, and of course bats can fly, and seals, excellent swimmers. So you can see how they got to places like this. And so when you go to a lot of islands, there's an absence of mammalian life history. And that's exactly what happened in New Zealand, in Hawaii, in many archipelagos around the world. And so it's the absence of these mammals and the some of the, the traits, so predators, for example. Herbivory was taken over by birds. So when you go to Hawaii, there used to be six ducks and geese, and they serve the roles of lots of other mammals that you see on the mainland. They, mm. they move soil, they transport seeds, they do all these kinds of things, but they're birds, they're not mammals. There were no bobcats, mountain lions. There were no birds of prey for many of these places. And so when these mammals arrived, and that was inevitable when these mammals arrived, so cast yourself back to the times of, of ancient sailing ships and the British and the French and the Spaniards, they're, and they're expanding their range, they're exploring new worlds, they're doing things. With them, they brought unintentional and deliberate visitors to the islands. Rats were amongst some of the first to think about. Rats are estimated to be on about 80% of the world's archipelagos. Wow. When rats arrived and when goats arrived, goats were often a deliberate introduction. Think of goats are often thought of as like a, an insurance strategy. If I get shipwrecked, there's a goat. I can eat it. I could milk it. I can, if I'm crafty, I can make myself a lovely cardigan or something like that goats for an insurance strategy lots of plants equivalent things when you look around the pacific you'll see a lot of cook and norfolk pines they were actually insurance masts in case the wooden ships lost lost a mast at sea so therein began this age of transfer and then it stepped up a notch when we started to have uh, an increase in shipping traffic and in our modern world advents like the shipping container and modern shipping traffic has sort of transformed the ability to intentionally and unintentionally move things around the planet. 
ants today, for example, so fire ants, crazy ants, there's a number of tramp ants that are particularly damaging, not just to plants and animals, but also to humans and our livelihoods, agriculture and things like this. And so invasives have been one of the driving factors of, of declines, extinctions, extirpation. So extirpation is to lose a population from an island, but it's not yet extinct. That has been a major feature of islands. And so it's no surprise that when you look at extinction rates and endangerment rates, islands are only about 5% of our total landmass on the planet. So you put all, take all the islands, put them in a bucket, in that bucket, about 5% are, are islands. That 5% has been home to about between 60 and 80% of our world's extinctions today. So or since about the 1500s, so think about those that age of sailing and things like this. And when we look at our OCN red list, sort of the global yardstick of what's closest to extinction, about 40% of our most threatened species are on islands. So 5% of the land, but all of this extinction and endangerment, there's a much higher rate of extinction and endangerment on islands. And it's because of this endemism our six geese out on Hawaii, there's only one left, the Nene. Wow. And the Nene is beautiful because it's kind of a, it's a lazy Canadian goose that came to Hawaii and then a part of that population that never went never went back and just evolved into what it is today. It's a lovely metaphor. And this, no offence to Canadians, I have Canadian heritage. <laughs> and, but we lost these these geese and we lost all sorts of really remarkable and rare endemic plants and animals all around the world because of these introductions they could not compete with these new species that arrived because they evolved in the absence of them they had no instinct or physiological response that allowed them to either fight or flight they just sat there and we that's how we lost them and so that, that rarity led to an increased vulnerability when these invasive species arrived. That's a long-winded answer, but... <laughs> No, that was great. No, that was fantastic. No, thank you. Because you were able to take us through the whole history and everything, which brings us up to now. And Dina, I would like to shift to you for a second. So seeing that you are the first author on this paper that we're discussing today, I would love if you could give a synopsis of what you three did and discovered, because what's so exciting and why I was so pumped to have the opportunity to talk to you three because you offer a solution and it is so rare in our field to have something that we can look towards as almost like a north star as a guiding light and you three found that so please dina could you just explain the things what did you three do <laughs> yeah sure well you know nick gave this amazing backstory and and it's that story about islands and history and human, you know, movement around the world and base of species that, you know, a, a large group of people actually came together and said, okay, like we have this huge problem and what can we do about it? And it wasn't just Nick and Dave and I, there's a lot of precedent before us. And so, you know, we actually worked with UC Santa Cruz. We worked with folks in New Zealand, IUCN and base of species specialist group, people from all these different places that recognize this really bad problem you know, came together and said, well, what, what can we do to, to resolve this? And that, you know, eventually we worked together to, to write this paper. But, but even before that, people on islands recognized that there was this, you know, absence of diversity, that things were starting to go extinct. 
and started removing invasive species from islands, just doing it and seeing quickly that, you know, if we take goats off of an island, then a lot of the native plants come back. You know, if you take rats off an island, you start seeing these amazing quick responses. And so, you know, this this just sort of started happening because people on islands recognized that there was a problem. And so we call this invasive species eradications, you know, more technically today. And so this group that I mentioned, they said, we, we came together and we said, well, how long has this been happening for? You know, we know that there are benefits from removing invasive species from islands because of many times of this happening over and over again. We've been taking, you know, especially invasive mammals, like Nick mentioned, are one of the most prolific kinds of invasive species on islands and the most damaging. And we see when you take them off, things respond really, really well. You see really quick benefits. So, so knowing that, you know, we wanted to just ask simple questions like, okay, like where has this been done before and how, and how many times and for how long? And so, and so with those simple questions, we basically built a database of island invasive species eradications. Um, it's kind of a mouthful. We call it the DICE, where we looked towards global experts. We sent out hundreds of emails to people around the world and said, hey, have you done this? Have you removed invasive species from islands? And if so, can you tell us about that? We went, you know, formally into the literature and looked through the literature to say, where has this been done and when? And we also looked for reports. So, you know, a lot of this information, like I, I mentioned in the very beginning, people were just removing invasive species from islands because they saw they were a problem. It wasn't something that was necessarily, you know, a systemic ops operation that people were doing all over. And so a lot of the knowledge is held up, you know, in people's memories or in boxes somewhere, if it was part of more formal projects, you know, before the internet. Um, so finding this information about what works and what doesn't where it's done was not really necessarily available. And so that's why we, you know, had to talk to so many people ask them for their knowledge, you know, and we're very, very thankful to all the people around the world that was, were able to take their time freely and share what they had done so that we can actually collate all this information into one place and then look at it and say, okay, so we, what, what do we have here? And what we found was over a hundred years of activity happening around the world on almost a thousand islands. I think it was something over 1500 different attempts to eradicate invasive species. This is a lot, you know, we, it's, it was a lot more of a you know normalized activity than I think anyone really realized until we pulled this thing together. And so we were really hoping that with this kind of knowledge of that this is not a new thing, you know, invasive species on islands, it's a problem. Taking invasive species off of islands, we can do it. People have been doing it for a really, really long time. And, and that's really what this paper is about. So Dave, let's shift to you and your expertise. So as you kind of hinted in your introduction and explaining your story, you're more of the tech guy. So how did this database come to be, this DICE, the Database of Islands and Invasive Species Eradications? Just like you said, Dina, it is definitely a mouthful, but it's very descriptive, which is perfect because all of us in science like descriptions. So Dave, could you tell us more about the database and how did you help create it? And is there anything else like it out there? Yeah, thanks. Sorry. Dina touched on this a little bit, but I guess, you know, for my story, I was re really early days of island conservation involved in actually implementing these interventions out in the field and 
was spending most of my time actually out on islands doing projects. But in the rare occasions that I was back in the office in Santa Cruz, there was this kind of collection of data that had been started by one of our founders, Bernie Tershi. Like Dina talked about it, there was, in the early 2000s, there was kind of this was really taking off. There was more and more people doing these kinds of things. It was getting the results were being published, how these projects were being implemented, were being published. And there was a real interest in saying, we need to be tracking this. Like This is a tool with a binary outcome. Either you are successful or you're not successful. The invasive species is gone or it's not. And you can see gains from that. So we need to start tracking that information. And so it was started by, you know, Bernie and Brad Kitt and others going around to conferences and writing notes on napkins and putting those and collating them all into a spreadsheet. And then someone else designed a really complicated database structure to organize all those things that was really hard to update. So one of my <laughs> first tasks was kind of organizing the data so that it could be easily updated in Microsoft Access, building a front end so that people could, you know, actually enter data into it. And there's a couple of really key things that Dina touched on. And one was adding a field to verify how accurate the information was. Mm. So again, a lot of these things were just kind of from conferences or from conversations, someone saying, oh, I did this eradication on this island, but we needed to have proof either from you know peer literature or reports just saying, can we verify this information or can we not verify the information? So that was one of the key things of, of being able to verify and then also adding in references so that we could say, these are the, these are the events that we can really you know, stand as, as being accurate or not. And as Dina mentioned, once we had a, a database internal, we could add information into. The other key piece was identifying what islands you're actually talking about. You know, someone can say Green Island or Rat Island. You know, there are hundreds of each of those, even multiple in the same country. And so a big portion of this was working with the UN Environmental Program, World Conservation Monitoring Center. They had a global island database product which shows you know, a location of an island, a polygon of it, a unique ID. So a huge part of what we did in the beginning was actually verifying what islands are we talking about and, and reaching back out to the experts to say, when you're talking about this island, is this the place you're actually talking about? So that we could, again, really verify all these kinds of information. And as we went through the peer review process and reaching out to experts, we were able to verify all of this. And then we worked with the UC Santa Cruz to build a public interface, which you can now see online at dice.islandconservation.org, where people can search and filter from a variety of different things to understand you know, where these events occurred, what kinds of species have they targeted, what are the outcomes of those different species. And it's and a really important piece is the ability to download that information. And I think as that website and that database came out, we saw more and more practitioners using the tool for a variety of different ways of being able to say, this is the success rate of the tool and using it to help, not necessarily justify, but help build the support and enabling conditions for doing these interventions of, look, this is a remarkably successful thing. It's being done around the world. We can do it here too. And so it's not only been a tool for tracking it, but it's been a, a tool to help countries and territories, local communities say, yes, we can do this too, because look, we can stand on the shoulders of others. And I think, you know, the database and the paper, that's a really important piece is just saying, it is the community coming together to say, look, we can have this remarkable, you know, binary outcome of success with really remarkable gains, and we all can do it too. And I think that's the true power of 
this APRIN database. So it sounds like this is really a revolutionary database that you were able to put together then. Like, does anything else like, like it exist? Like, was this like a first thing like this? Or do you know of any similar, like similar things out there? As far as other databases that track conservation interventions as clearly as this, I'm not aware of any other databases that have quite the, you know, the same sort of, of track record. And, and hopefully this is the kind of thing that other conservation interventions can try and, and replicate of if there are clear outcomes how can we track the global impact of local action? And I think that that is a real novel application that was developed here. Yeah, it's so pioneer. And also, I love that you just mentioned something that I think is so powerful is that it sounds like it's pretty much open access. So people who are studying, maybe they have a different scientific question, then they can go into this and answer it because you've done all of this amazing work and put it together. That is so powerful from a community standpoint. You know, this, this, any of us, I was clicking around on, on it. It is really cool. I was like, click. I was like, oh, that's goats. Oh, that's rats. Oh, that was the multiple things. And like, and then it also has the success rate or not. And so I thought that was, it's just a very powerful tool. It's simple and easy to use and just very aesthetically pleasing too, because I've come to find that sometimes that, that part gets missed, <laughs> but it's very yeah. nice to click through. It is, it is fun. And it's, it, it is when I think about other sectors. So if you look in the, in the human health field or you look in the engineering field, there are oodles of examples of where uh, solutions, if you like, or actions are tracked and you can evaluate the different success rates and probably human, you know, we've done that really well in human health to understand, okay, well, the, this kind of surgery or this kind of treatment or these kinds of things have different kinds of success rates. And you can see, we can get a really nuanced view with those kinds of things as well. Like, okay, well, people with these kinds of conditions or people with this kind of background will have this kind of outcome. And so in the conservation field, there really, there really aren't that many products out there like this. You know, you can see things like the IUCN red list, really important, but that tracks something different. It tracks sort of conservation status. There are, when you look at things like there's a protected area management database. It, if you go to the, again, to the IUCN, you can see all the protected areas in the world. Fantastic resource. But it doesn't necessarily tell you the outcome of those protected areas. And so there's, this this tool goes a little bit further and it lends itself to that because as Dave pointed out, there is an outcome we can track. Dina is, is uh, a very, very clever person and she's leading another example of where a solution is afoot as it relates to seabird restoration. So watch this space because I think there'll be another exciting development that I'm sure you want to invite Dina back to talk about sometime soon. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, Dina. We're definitely going to get to that in like the future application. So for sure, they could like drop that little hint. It's like, oh, stay tuned because we're not done yet. So <laughs> that was awesome. Oh, thanks so much for that, Nick. So Dave, let's shift back to you for a second. So I want to explore if we could almost boil the database down to a single point, just like you said a moment ago, what you used to do, or you also do, not used to, also do, when you're not in the office working on this database and actually collecting the data, you were in the field going through and doing these interventions, you know, these eradications. So could you explain what that is? Like, what is this intervention, these eradications? And maybe do you even have an example that you've organized? Like, what was involved? Like, could you like drop me, take me with you to an island and like walk me through? What do you do to restore one of these? How do you get one of these projects off the ground? 
Yeah, that's a that's a great question. And there's a huge amount of work that goes into all of these intervention projects. And you know, it's really starting by kind of understanding what do you stand to gain from doing these interventions. And so the starting point is always is what is the what is the benefit? What are the species, the habitat you're trying to protect, the ecosystem services, how does the community, you know, and stakeholders use that island? And you know, for island conservation's perspective or others, there's oftentimes communities and stakeholders coming to the conclusion that we need to do something about this particular island. This invasive species that has been introduced, say rats, on Desicheo National Wildlife Refuge in Puerto Rico was one of the projects that I had managed. Desicheo was one of the Caribbean's largest seabird colonies. There used to be descriptions, you know, again, like Nick was saying, back in the, the sailing days of clouds of birds over Desicheo. And then from a series of introductions of invasive species of goats and rats and other invasive species, those birds slowly declined to the point where there was a very small number of birds there. And so really impactful for over the course of the life history of that island. And the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, one of the managers of that re of the refuge, realized that something needed to be done to be able to restore that particular island. And so you know, going through the process of understanding what are the species that are there, what you know what are their distributions so you can understand how we're going to actually remove those invasive species and so when we're talking about rats there's a series of of principles that we apply for eradications of you want to make sure that you are addressing the the problem you're you're removing all of the invasive species on the island and that you are understanding the kinds of consequences of the actions that you can have both positive and and negative of you know you want to make sure that if you're removing the invasive species that invasive plants or other species that you don't want to come back aren't going to come back and from from an eradication perspective there's a series of tools that we have to be able to remove invasive species we, and we go into that in the paper that there's toxicant based approaches so using conservation toxicants to be able to remove particularly rodents or there's manual removal methods hunting and trapping and those and and those sorts of methods to be able to remove invasive species from islands and again as part of these processes it's going through an understanding okay we're going to be doing this intervention what are the short-term and, and long-term consequences of doing that. And so there's a lot of studies beforehand of, okay, if we're going to use a conservation bait, what are the potential impacts of that from a short-term? How is that going to affect the ecosystem and the species that are on there? And there's a huge amount of, of risk mitigation to understand the potential short-term consequences of that. And all of this comes down to, again, from, from land managers and from stakeholders of long-term versus short-term gain of there may be short-term consequences from you know, using some of these eradication methods on islands and but those short-term consequences are are outweighed by the long-term benefits of seeing clouds of seabirds come back to desitaire national wildlife refuge or islands in the aleutians in alaska where there's a clear difference you can you can land on shore and instantly know whether there's rats there or not, because on rat-infested islands, it's virtually silent. There oh, is wow. no sound. You get on there, and it's just echoing landscape. You go to the next island over that's been rat-free, and it's just a cacophony of sound. You're as soon as you hit the island, you're just you know hit with all of these big sounds, and you know that there's species there. And there's a very clear difference between those two things. And those are the kinds of outcomes and benefits that we're looking for. And 
working with communities to be able to make those make those decisions. And you know, I think it's really important to to know that choosing to not do an intervention on these islands is a decision in, in and of itself. Because we know the consequences of that. We know that if those islands will remain silent, they will remain without seabird sounds if we do not do an intervention. Or we know that these species that have been introduced to islands will cause extinctions. And that may be a choice that has to be made for a variety of different reasons, but we know that that's an outcome. And so all of these things are land management, they are all management decisions. And, you know, at the end of the day, these projects are trying to correct the mistakes of the past that Nick talked about, of these intentional or unintentional introductions and how can we, how can we right those wrongs where it makes sense. And we know that the current tools that we have to do this, we can't do all of the interventions that we want to do. I think we, we did an analysis in another paper that looked at with our current tool set, we can only do about 15% of the eradications around uh, islands, eradications around the world that we would want to do. And that to really achieve the kinds of gains that we could, we could have, we need a new set, a new toolbox. We need tools that are species specific or new ways of detecting incursions before they get onto an island. We need you know, communities of practice to be able to do these things so that they're more cost effective and that communities can be involved and you don't need international expertise flying from somewhere else to help get these off the ground. And the future is there and it's being built, and which is a really exciting, exciting thing. And an important output of this paper and this exercise has shown that in 100 years, we've come a really long ways from really early interventions that were done by single individuals to groups of people. And now we have new tools on the horizon that can make these things even more scalable into the future to see really, really remarkable things. Yeah. And kind of what you've been hinting at and something that I would love to discuss a little bit further, it's it's almost like a conservation triage. It's like nobody wants to go to these islands and necessarily do this specific type of work. And so could you maybe, maybe share, because sometimes there's people that have opinions or ideas or maybe not quite understand what's going on, but have you received some negative flack essentially for doing these types of things? And like, and how do you work through that? If someone might be going through is like, how in the world are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Like, is there a better way? Have you received anything like that or anything? And what, and if you have, like, how do you respond? Like, what's your normal way if someone's asking or questioning what you do or what you did? in this particular case yeah i mean i think you know all of the projects that have happened around the globe have all had some level of concern or trying to understand you know why are these projects being done but i think that that is really the important part is it's about a values-based decision of why are we doing these kinds of interventions of you know there are these invasive species that have been put that are on islands and they're existing and we know that they're disrupting the ecosystem and we know that they're causing extinctions and you can make the decision to to keep to have that continue or you can make the decision of you know the tools that we have that are currently available the risks that those tools present and potential short-term consequences of those tools you know can we outweigh all of those different pieces. And, you know, I think it's an interesting question because, again, this is a global tool and each community, each country has to deal with those in different ways. You know, within the U.S., there is a regulatory system and environmental compliance that has public consultation, particularly if it's on, you know, U.S. federal lands that has to go through that process and involves 
community engagement and community meetings and a variety of different options, including the option to not proceed with the project, that all of those have to be weighed in you know, a very public process. And in other countries, it's it's not so. It's much more up to individual land managers. But I think it is that really that focus on what do you stand to gain by doing these interventions and what do you stand to lose. And ultimately, all of these projects come down to feasibility and social acceptability of uh, you know, these projects will not move forward unless a broad consensus that it is an acceptable thing to move forward with. And, you know, that doesn't mean that there's not opposition. You know, at best, you know, you can hope that the majority of people are saying we can live with these short-term, you know, we want the short-term or the long-term gains and we can live with the short-term impacts. Yeah, because I really wanted to take a moment to talk about that. Since I work more in the predator space, there's always so much controversy. And like I can feel that some like an intervention like this could could also stir up a lot of emotions, a lot of feelings. And like, how do you navigate that? And so, no, that was that was a perfect answer. That was beautiful. It's like it's it's at the end of the day, we all have to come together and make the right decision, whatever that right means. It is different from place to place. You know, Madagascar might feel like it's so so different for there than somewhere in like, you know, the Cayman Islands or something like those are very different cultures, different stakeholders, different everything. So just because we're talking about one global database, yeah, these are each different places. And whatever happened was not just like, not just island conservation, nature conservancy or Pacific Rim. It wasn't just you three coming in. This is what we're doing. Like that's, I just really want an opportunity to talk about that. Like this is a group effort. Every single time one of these data points is entered into this database. It's not just that. It's a whole sweep of things that went into that. So thanks again for, for really explaining that with me. So Dana, like Dana, let's move towards you for a second. So first, there are some very amazing statistics that you guys came out of this paper, which first we didn't have had a chance to say yet. So if you could please just say like, boom, 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 these are the amazing things that we discovered. And then after that, could you dive into kind of what Nick alluded to? What is the application of this? So like we found these things. This is like undeniable science truth. We found these things. And then how do we take this and move forward? What's the application of this information? Yeah, that's a really good question. Thanks for asking it. And, you know, to, to tie into what to what Dave was saying, you know, something that our, our paper was looking into was not just, you know, where have these, these things been done, but like what kind of islands, you know, how big are they? Are they big, small? Do they have people? Are there threatened species on them or, or not? And so what what we did end up seeing is that over time, there was this huge increase in the number of, of invasive species eradications from islands, especially since the 1980s, when certain technologies kind of helped us be able to do a better job of removing invasives. But that was mostly done on smallish islands that were uninhabited, kind of easy-ish enough to get out there, do the job and leave and watch, you know, biodiversity respond on its own. But what we saw was over time, and specifically in this last decade, that, that rate of invasive species eradications has actually declined. And instead, what we're seeing is an increase of projects on bigger islands, and bigger islands tend to have human communities on them. They also have more biodiversity on them. So arguably, you know, practitioners are starting to work on harder islands. It takes longer to plan and evaluate, be thoughtful, you know, local communities must be involved. Funding, you know, needs to come from various different places. So these are just harder projects that, that people are attempting to, to do. 
and they're attempting to do them because they saw so much success prior. Um, and you know, we, we're hoping that this paper, it just, it helps people understand that, again, like this, this is something that's been done for hundreds, not hundreds, sorry, so over a hundred years, <laughs> with over 1,500 different examples of it happening. And now we're seeing it more and more on islands with people where there's actually a benefit beyond just biodiversity. You know, rats carry diseases. And so removing rats from islands can actually stop those diseases from being spread. We, we can, there's actually been examples looking at, you know, islands with and without rats, where they've been removed or not from, you know, islands with people or not. And we actually see diseases like toxoplasmosis. We see that on islands with people and rats. And when those rats are, are gone and same with cats, then we see those diseases going away. And there's a lot of examples of that. So that's a really important aspect of, of why you might want to remove invasive species from islands where there are human communities. Another important aspect of that is agriculture or even fishing. Um, invasive species can, can have a negative effect in, on agricultural systems. And you know, we see that on continents too, that's not alone to just islands, but the effect is really great when people depend on their land and on their sea. You know, to eat and to survive and thrive. And so by working together with communities and working on these, you know, bigger islands and inhabited islands, we're actually seeing a, a much greater benefit, not just to, you know, the plants and animals that we love, but like to our, you know, human communities as well. And then to continue down a little further, like I said, Nick kind of alluded to something that you might be working on as well. So how are you applying this? Like already, you just published this paper. I mean, literally it just came out like this, woo, you know, fireworks, woo, woo, woo. You know, it just came out and you're already using it to apply to the future. So what could you share with us maybe about what you're up to and how we, this is already being taken a step further already from what you just, guys just released? Yeah, definitely. I know. I appreciated that he put in that plug for this part of the conversation because, you know, the, the, the database that we developed for this paper, it really was monumental in that it was so difficult to track conservation efforts and, and their outcomes. There's a lot of other, you know, stats out there that are easy to track, like baseball stats or, or you know, <laughs> right. Nick has talked about Kelly Blue Book. People have been consolidating information to one place to be able to make decisions for a variety of different reasons. But in conservation, there are a lot of problems and there's very limited funding. And it's just really hard for people to put their money into, let's develop a database that then can tell us about what happened in the past. And let's use that to inform our decisions in the future. No, like we're wanting to get boots on the ground and actually do the work to prevent extinctions and to restore ecosystems. So it's not so easy to track these things. And so just having had the opportunity to do that for invasive species eradications and, and track those efforts over time has been really, really important for, you know, island biodiversity. But the other thing that came out of it was just the actual tool and the method for developing these databases and recognizing that I'm now with Pacific Rim Conservation, which I mentioned earlier in Hawaii, we're working with, with the Nature Conservancy and a variety of other groups that are interested in taking, well, we already actually have done this, but basically taking the methods that we did for this database and asking it for a totally different question, which was reintroduction efforts. I mentioned that I studied seabirds for a long time was, you know, I just, I love that group of birds. And this, this group of people are experts in restoring seabird communities in particular. So, you know, what we've done is said, okay, let's, let's take this and let's ask 
where have seabirds been reintroduced to islands and mainland areas over time? How have they been moved? Has it worked? Has it not worked? So we developed the seabird restoration database really based off of this invasive species eradication database. Our collaborators are in New Zealand as well as in the U.S. and we actually have already put all this data together. We've reached out to hundreds of people to gather information about where seabirds have been translocated or attracted back into restoration sites. We also ask questions like, were invasive species removed prior? So the work that was done with this, with this invasive species database is actually playing into us being able to understand you know, what kind of management actions are taking place and what can we restore thereafter. And in this case, we're, we're thinking about seabirds. Uh, we have the data already up online at seabirddatabase.org, and we are writing up a paper kind of similar to the one that we did for the, for the DICE so that we can help seabird practitioners in particular be able to make decisions about where seabirds can be restored effectively, what works and what doesn't. So yeah, it's really exciting. And, and even from this project, I'm thinking, well, where else can this be applied? You know, And especially in this sort of restoration reintroduction framework. There are a lot of species out there that kind of need a helping hand. You know, even if we, in some cases, when invasive species, for example, are eradicated from islands, you know, we, we know that native biodiversity can come back on its own. But given that there's a ton of other stressors out there, you know, including climate change, hunting for seabirds, there's issues with fisheries, bycatch, you know, animals often need a little bit more these days. And so by, you know, being able to reintroduce them to places that they've become extirpated is a really important, really successful tool. So, you know, we're hoping to take what we've learned now about seabirds and, you know, hopefully one day can do that for other taxa too. And you completely just answered my other question, which was, what do you do when eradications aren't enough? And you just answered that. <laughs> you help the things come back. So you might get rid of everything, but sometimes nature does need a helping hand and identifying that. And so now you have a whole database that you're working on, which is amazing. Like, okay, yes, we have this platform foundation. Now what's the next level? Because sometimes, yeah, we just got to give, got to give a little nudge and then hopefully they can come back. So that's fantastic. And of course, when that's out, you know, you're going to have to come back on and tell me all the things and we're going to have to go through that. Yes. <laughs> and dive deep into that. So Nick, I would love to take this back to you and, and let's go full circle here. So we've talked about what we do, how to get rid of everything and eradicate everything and try to restore it, as Dina just said, back to its pristine pre-human mess upness. So how do we prevent this from happening over and over and over again? Good question because we can remove these harmful invasive species, but how do we stop them coming back again? The mechanisms by their arrival may still be present, and so we need to deal with that. I want to call out something that you just said, though, is, you know, the, you, and you referenced the goal. What are, we, what are we striving for? And and Dina did a great job pointing to who's our audience, who are we communicating to with these kinds of science products? And, and when I think about that, you know, it's, it's organizations like, like Island Conservation, Pacific Rim, TNC, a host of others in the NGO space. And it's also about two decision makers, both at local levels that may have responsibilities for islands, but also at, at national scales as, as well. And when we, each of these different organizations may have different concepts of what they're striving for. 
And in some cases, it may not be achievable, especially when we look down the barrel of climate change, to imagine that we could recreate the past. And so there's a particularly challenging, exciting, daunting future where we have to think about what, what is the right way to create resilience for our islands, for the people that are dependent on islands and the species and the ecosystems that are dependent on islands. And so we kind of have to flip the paradigm and be willing to, to be brave when we think about the future. What, what can we build that's likely going to persist into the future? And a really big part of that touches on thinking about the islands and the solutions and the actions for islands in, in a holistic sense. And, and this comes right back to biosecurity, which, which is a, a key part of what you're alluding to, which is the prevention of new invasive species coming onto an island. And removing an invasive mammal like a rat can only be done if there is a high degree of confidence that you can control or greatly limit new arrivals of that, that same species. And as we talked about earlier, our world is changing radically. We're becoming far more increasingly globalised. There's lots more touchstones from different places around the planet to islands. And each one of those touchstones you can think about as a vector, a pathway for not just ourselves or our goods or our services to be transported, but also uninvited guests. And what are the harm those uninvited guests can have? One of the most terrifying and remarkable stories is a brown tree snake in Guam, which was a leftover uninvited guest to the island of Guam. People didn't even really know about it. And all of a sudden, again, it comes back to sound. I like that sound's a major feature of our discussion. They started to notice things were missing in mm. the forest, the sounds, birds started to disappear. And then all of a sudden there were extinctions and we still have the brown tree snake on Guam. We still do not have the capacity to remove this key threat to, to the ecosystems of Guam. It's still there. And we have the added burden. Guess where Guam's connected to? It's connected to Hawaii. It's connected to Palau. It's connected to all these other places that if the brown tree snake got there, it will have equally devastating consequences. And now we have to think about ants, these crazy ants that are being moved around the Pacific. They bite people. They're really annoying. They'll reduce the capacity, the value of a tourism product in some of these island nations, in addition to out-competing and predating native invertebrates. So we really have something else to lose here. And, and the threats are increasing because of this globalisation. And so we have to be really, really vigilant with biosecurity. And so there's a reason when you go to New Zealand, you get off the plane, they don't ask you if you've been to North Korea or Iran. They want to say, have you been camping? Can I see the, the soles of your boots? And I've done, I'm not from New Zealand, but I go to New Zealand regularly on my way home to see family and whatnot. And they, they do it. They will check everything within an inch of its life because the risk of bacteria or fungi or invertebrates coming in on those boots into the country is potentially economically incredibly damaging. And you see the same thing when you go to Australia as well. And when we think about our little islands as well, here in California, the Channel Islands, or when you go to Auckland, you go out into the Haraki Gulf, you see Rangitotu or Motutapu and these kinds of places, really strict biosecurity. And you, we want to know, 
Do you have seeds trapped in the Velcro of your jacket? Have you run your hands through the bottom of the pockets of your pack? Are you really confident that you don't have a rat in the back of your car that's going onto the ferry? And so on and so on and so on. So biosecurity is the, the prevention of new invasive species being transported to, to our islands. And a key other key part of this is detection and then rapid response. We want to be able to detect those things and rapidly respond to get rid of them. Because in many cases, like the brown tree snake, for example, we don't have the capacity to deal with that if it reaches above a certain level. And so detection and rapid response is key. And that's why some of the most fantastic workers in the biosecurity space, you see conservation dogs, which have their sense of smell as like eight times the capacity of a human or things like this. And of course, they're rewarded a lot more easily than humans. And so they're, you, know, you can get some really willing workers in that space. It's, it's fantastic. So biosecurity is sort of a component of this full spectrum of activity that needs to go on as we think about invasive species. So eradications are often thought of as like a foundational intervention. You can't do a lot of these other things unless you deal with this primary threat. Everything else is kind of fruitless. So you only get sort of minor gains or, you know, you may end up just banging your head against the wall. So you really got to deal with this primary threat of invasives. Once you have dealt with that, with things like eradication of invasive mammals, that enables these other conservation activities to occur. Returning lost seabird populations, maybe bringing in a new animal or plant that as we look down the barrel of climate change, this is the best opportunity for it to persist into the future. And we need to have biosecurity, sort of this ongoing thing to protect these investments, to protect these places to last into the future. And, and the best way to think about that is in a return on investment capacity. It's, it's the same as staying healthy. As much as I try and tell my kids, look, those bags of chips are rubbish and that chocolate bar is not going to do you any good. Let's think about human health. That doesn't resonate with them, but it's the truth. It's cheaper and it's easier to simply do these low tempo, low cost activities to stay healthy. And that's what we need to think about with our islands, low tempo, low cost. Because frankly, if these islands get some of these nasties, the invasive, harmful invasive species, we may not have the capacity to deal with them. Or if we do, it may be that, look, it's not a priority until 10 years from now. And that's when something really dramatic and really bad can happen. So there's a, a biosecurity is, is key and, and the way, and I think that's a great opportunity to think about these, these interventions, these eradications of invasive mammals as, as how does it fit into the spectrum of other restoration activities that are needed in order to see these goals, these goals that might be at a local scale or at a national scale, or, and they will reflect different values like Dave alluded to, where human health is gonna be folded into these. And we can think about economic livelihoods because we're seeing more of these islands in places with people and so on and so on. So these different value systems are gonna lend themselves to the goals. They're gonna drive the goals. And we need to think about the solutions in this full spectrum of restoration activities that are out there. And I love that you just brought up the example of the moment like you land in New Zealand and they're asking about your camping boots because I've been to, to the Galapagos Islands and yeah. I work in the tourism sector. So explaining what someone is going to experience when they land on that island and every single item that they have is going to be searched. And it does feel pretty 
invasive, that's the topic of today, invasive into like your private space. But when someone understands what they're actually doing, they're looking for those nuts. They are looking for something that might be detrimental to this, like as close to pristine, as we know, they're not like 100% pristine, but close to pristine areas, how important it is that they, there, there is this checkpoint that is just going to make sure that these islands that one, the pretty much the only industry there is tourism. I have a lot of friends there that are guides and just, you know, boat owners and stuff. Like when COVID happened, they were absolutely devastated. Now, just imagine if something was accidentally brought in that wiped out one of the most amazing places that's one for tourists and then also for biodiversity. And that one checkpoint is hoping, I mean, us in the tourism industry, we do our best to try to prepare tourists and like, please do not bring these items. And there's always that person like, oh, they're not going to find it. They're not going to check. They will find it and they will check <laughs> and they will take it. But it's all for the greater good of the wildlife that you're there to see. And so just keeping that in perspective, perspective when you are going through some things like that. Like it, it is, it's a biosecurity thing. It's has nothing to do with you as a person. It's like, this is to make sure that our islands stay here. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's a fantastic way for any visitor, a tourist, a scientist to actively participate in conservation. I, when we worked on Macquarie Island, for example, there's native brassica down there. Fantastic mega, mega herbs. You're in these so you're down in the southern Antarctic, it's crazy windy. The southern ocean is just screaming through, the roaring 40s, the furious 50s. And these they're called mega herbs. And some of them belong to the brassica family. And you can you duck down underneath them and the wind disappears. It's like you're in like a hobbit tunnel or something. That's fantastic. <laughs> but a consequence of that is no cauliflower or broccoli is taken to the island as a food item because of the potential for disease transfer. Mm. And so that even like at that sort of thoughtful level and an island that belongs to the U.S. National Wildlife Refuge System and to the Nature Conservancy that I visit every now and then, we freeze all of our belongings for 48 hours once we arrive on the island in order to eliminate the likelihood that ants, for example, or seeds have opportunity to persist. And when we used to go down to the Antarctic, when we moved between locations, we would wash our boots in sort of a, a mix of bleach and water in order to, not only to get rid of all the penguin poop on our boots, but to eliminate the idea that we might transport disease from one colony to another as we moved around there. And so it's kind of, that stuff's fun. Like that's, <laughs> yeah. and that's, that's yes. people partic actively participating in conservation. So not only is it a responsibility, but man, it's an opportunity to do cool stuff. I'm like, oh, why do I have to do this? Oh, wow. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to do this. Yeah, yeah. So like the moment you land, you're already getting like a conservation lesson. It's like, this is what we're doing and this is why. Yeah. And then and then to expand on that, you know, since you work with so many different islands and groups and stuff, is there a nation or a region that is like setting the standard of this? Who is like the leading body or entity in restoring islands or yeah, who can we look to, to oh, set the that, way? <laughs> That's a good question. And we did see some of those results in, in the paper. This was an opportunity to sort of see some outcomes. And, you know, I know Mexico is a real, is is a, a, a superb example. And you can see that all the way up at a national level, Mexico has a national island strategy. 
And this is remarkable because Mexico is not an island nation. You know, another another great body of work has been done by the Seychelles, where they are an island nation, so they they obviously think islands in just about everything they do. Not only have they done a, this foundational activity a lot of times for their offshore islands, they've also done so much in sort of building more resilient islands by moving species back into these spaces, revegetation work, tackling some of the plant weeds, things like this. So countries like the Seychelles and countries like Mexico, we have to talk about New Zealand because a lot of the tools, especially this tool, the focus of this paper, originated in New Zealand. The development of these tools and the testing and the trialling and the piloting and, and these kinds of things evolved in New Zealand. And so we've, we've got a... You know, our New Zealand colleagues who are on the paper, like James Russell and, and these kind of, they do a good job, healthy job of reminding us of the, <laughs> the importance of New Zealand's contribution in this space. That's awesome. <laughs> and what I, what, I, what I will say is it also highlighted for us opportunities where some countries have an enormous wealth, not, not in a financial sense, but a wealth in islands that they are responsible for in the U.S., has islands in, believe it or not, the Southern Hemisphere and way out in the Western Pacific, north up in the Arctic, the Caribbean, islands all over the place in an incredible array of latitudes and ecosystems and species diversity. Yet, they and they are doing things in the island space, but there is so much more opportunity to be done there. And so when we look at this paper, another thing we see is we see wow, places like Mexico, that's sort of gold standard. But we also see, hey, wow, the US, there's opportunity here to do so much more and benefit islands and communities at a scale that would be quite remarkable on the on the global stage. So I don't have a US accent, so I'm always cautious about how I say this, so maybe Dave or Dina should. But <laughs> US has a long way to go. <laughs> No, I'm glad. And, and thank you for being honest with that. Because sometimes, you know, even though the show is based in the US, it is a very global international community. And so like highlighting places that all of us should start looking towards, like who is the correct player in this? Where should we focus our attention and start emulating what they're doing or looking more into what they're doing? And yeah, I mean, I'm not surprised that the US isn't the top of the line there with everything else that's going on right now. So that's I mean, screw that somebody's leading the charge. <laughs> well, the U the U.S. has also done some really remarkable things as well. It's it, we talked about the Channel Islands. The Channel Islands has this this bird behind me that is the island scrub jay, and it's endemic to the island of Santa Cruz in the Channel Islands. Channel Islands are eight islands, and the Channel Islands used to have a history of ranching, and so there were, and then there was this big renaissance in conservation. And one of the first actions was sort of transfer of ownership to national parks and other land management agencies, including the Nature Conservancy. And these ungulates, which were non-native, came off the islands. So we got sheep, cattle, horses, goats. They came off the islands, and not surprisingly, vegetation recovered. And so birds like this have benefited because of the oak and the ceanothus and all these remarkable things that the scrub jay is dependent on because they removed an unwanted engineer, if you like. Ungulates and rats are very much the same. By removing these these invasive species, you can see this, this transform. Nature can transform itself and, and bring itself back in a way. So the, the US has done 
really remarkable things and, and probably one of the best measures if you look at the US's own Endangered Species Act. So this is the US's equivalent of the red list. It's a yardstick of who is closest to extinction. And we've seen animals and plants come off the ESA red list. And eradication of invasive species on islands has contributed to that outcome. In the Channel Islands, there's something called a night lizard. And it's this really awesome, craggly, Game of Thrones looking thing, but it's about your day. <laughs> awesome. And it, by getting rid of goats and by allowing habitat to recover, it's allowed the range to expand in a way that land managers and the powers that be don't feel as worried about it going extinct anymore. And it came off the red list. So I have kids. And so I'm not going to tell them you're doing a terrible job you really need to do better it's more about well done you've done some good things now let's look to the future mm. i think that's the approach for the u.s yes <laughs> yeah. i think I've... there are other stories too that you know nick talked about the channel islands one of the ones that stands out for me and you mentioned the galapagos earlier was there's a couple of projects that island conservation and the galapagos national park did to restore some of those island ecosystems so there was Pinzone Island, there was the Pinzone tortoise, which only lives on that particular island, that because rats were introduced, was not breeding on the island anymore and hadn't been breeding for quite a long time. And it was actually the Galapagos National Park that was going out to the island, collecting eggs, collecting young tortoises, and bringing them back to another island so that they could be reared until they were big enough where rats wouldn't be impacting them. And, you know, they basically had to be above a certain size at which they wouldn't be impacted by rats anymore. And so, we did an intervention to remove invasive rats from the island. And then within a couple of years, Dina, I think you were involved in this, and a few others went back to the island and saw tortoises hatching and on the island for the first time in, you know, decades. And so those are the kinds of gains that you can see. A, a similar project in the Galapagos on Rabada Island, there was a species of gecko that had only been described in fossil records by the California Academy of Sciences and wasn't even known to exist. Similarly, rodents were removed from that island. And two years later, I was with the park rangers on the island surveying whether we were successful or not. And one of the park rangers reached down and grabbed one of these gecko species by hand. Oh my God, it was the first it's time it had ever been, you know, it didn't even know it existed. And now we there's a species of gecko that was only in fossil record that had been captured live that we didn't, no one knew it was there. And so these are the kinds of really remarkable surprises and gains you can see by doing these interventions. And that's just on the species level. But if you think about the vegetation recovery or how increased, increased seabirds can have nutrients to go into coral reefs, into fish biomass, there's all this whole ecosystem restoration that you can, that you can speak to. And Dina, I mean, you were involved in that, in those Galapagos projects. I don't know if you want to add any more to that. Yeah, no, I mean, we live for this stuff, right? Like, we're not in it because we want to remove invasive species or talk about invasive species in it at all. You know, it's more about what can happen once we do these things. The, the story of this gecko is just unbelievable. I mean, it hasn't, hadn't even been, I think it is known from the fossil record. And it's just this simple action of taking away something that's, you know, predating on the island that all of a sudden it's gone and you rediscover species you thought were extinct. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. But yeah, we I led a field crew out to Pinzon and Rabbit Island back in 2014 to monitor response of biodiversity after the rats were removed from those islands. 
And actually, while we were out there, the the group that does Galapagos tortoise captive rearing, they because rats are gone, they're able to you know take them from those areas and put them back onto these islands. And so we actually got to see people like hiking tortoises in like up into this island, like on, in backpacks. I've seen pictures um, of that. That's amazing. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, I mean these these you know captive breeding programs are absolutely crucial for you know holding on to species that are near to extinct. But we have to do something on these islands. And so what the, the Galapagos story is just so amazing because we actually were able to say, okay, you know, this super endangered tortoise can go back there now. And not only that, but, you know, while we were there, we saw evidence of hatchlings. You know, these tortoises that were brought back from these captive breeding programs were breeding. And it's just, it's an amazing response to, you know, and we're just hoping that, you know, over time that these tortoises will actually live out their days there for, you know, these, these animals live hundred years or so, you know, I mean, they, they're pretty incredible as are, you know, a lot of the other, you know, unique Galapagos wildlife that you all, everyone hears about them. And we think about the Galapagos as this, you know, pristine, we like to say that area, but you know, invasive species had a huge impact on native biodiversity in that region. And we're hoping to reverse that. And they're definitely coming back to like who, who to watch in this space. It's the Galapagos National Park and the communities that live in that space. The, the trajectory of courage and the trajectory of impact that they've had in a couple of decades to offset this foundational threat of invasive species is amazing to see. And so the, the Galapagos, oh my God, obviously not just a great place for endemism and the biodiversity and the history, but also because of the conservation, because it is a global model for what can be achieved and we when you can see that in other places so you can see how the the history or the narrative over time that we're able to document this paper you can see sort of intuitive directions that it's going and one of the most conspicuous ones is is again is New Zealand and so they have set themselves this goal of predator free New Zealand 2050 and so they would like to see one of Australia's unfortunate gifts the possum the brush-tailed possum removed completely removed from the entire nation in addition to stoats and to rats and that's a huge goal that's the equivalent of JFK saying we're going to the moon at the end of the century they don't know how they're going to do it yet but what it's set in motion with this this ambition is new tool development it's communities of practice it's building a foundations that again the rest of the world is sort of benefiting from as this this country introspective on how to reach these these bigger goals and you can see similar things else australia is striving to tackle feral cats at a national scale because of the impact that that these animals have not just to their offshore islands but to the nation as a whole and so there's you can see really ambitious and remarkable goals being set as it relates to islands and so again you know when you think about roi if you're in the business of seeing good things happen on this planet, then islands are, are an intuitive place to direct your energies because you can get high return on investment. And so it's definitely a space to watch. 
Dina's these the all these stories of individual stories on islands that we we can tell these all day. Each one of us has so many of these these stories. And if your listeners are interested, we did write a paper with a, a have to give her a shout out because she's been so key to to all of our endeavors and our 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 uh, thought leadership is Holly Jones and Holly helped us pull together all these incidences of, hey, this thing got downlisted, this seabird returned, or hey, this place seemed to grow more lizards, or uh, we pulled all of them together into a single paper as well. So it's a wonderful companion piece because this paper sets out really I love this paper because it's just so simple. It's like, hey, this tool, it's got an 88% success rate. I'm like, oh, that, that's pretty good. I get that. And now that we have this companion piece that talks about, well, that was this 88%, that's a means to an end. That's just that's just a path to an outcome. Tell me about the outcome. This other paper talks about the outcome and it says, hey, here's all the, in this case, the animals that have benefited. And it talks about the number of populations. And there were hundreds of populations and, and dozens of species where we've seen positive outcomes, either because they had the capacity to recover on their own simply by removing this threat or because it enabled some other action to occur, moving an animal around or something like this, conservation translocations like Dina alluded to earlier. So we'll make sure that that's, that's in your notes. Yeah, I was going to say, I wrote that down, my show notes, Holly Jones. Okay, we're going to make sure that paper is in there too because I want to read that as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah so, I mean, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just, I was just going to say, I mean, Something, you know, bringing it back to the paper and, and what we were able to look at was just who is doing these actions. And we've talked a lot about New Zealand and, you know, moving on to these bigger, more ambitious projects. You know, Nick mentioned the Seychelles and Mexico. You know, for them, they've already accomplished, at least Mexico, I know, has like attempted or finished over half of their islands with invasive species. have already, wow. already removed invasive species from those islands. And so, their actions are now moving towards these lot more larger restoration goals. You know, it's not, it's again, it's not the removal of invasive species that's the end game. It's like to restore ecosystems. And a lot of these projects are being done with local communities. And so, you know, we're, we're able to see like when different countries started these interventions, you know, what, what their track record was. And, you know, for places like Mexico, they've done so much that they're now able to move on to the actual seeing biodiversity response across so many of their islands because of the hard work they've done. And the other thing, you know, that got picked up by doing this work is that, you know, originally, or not originally, but over most of the decades of these actions, like 80% of all eradications were done by just eight different nations, New Zealand, Mexico, Seychelles, US. But what we're seeing now is more and more countries doing the work itself. There's something like, I think, 36 or 38 different countries that we identified that are now doing invasive species eradication. So it's all this hard work that everyone has already done, bringing this all in and sharing that information. You know, it's this knowledge sharing capability that's really, you know, helping us see more and more people in a diverse set of communities and a diverse number of islands now really attempting eradication. So it's really exciting. And I think that's really important is that we're really seeing this replication and scaling of these different visions you know again nick mentioned the predator free 2050 the seychelles and mexico have reached these points palau is starting to explore a vision for what are invasive free rock islands look like a group of islands in canada the haida Gwaii, uh, is similarly considering how can we achieve archipelago-wide invasive free 
outcomes that would benefit community and, and the local goals. And Island Conservation and Scripps and Rewild have launched an Island Ocean Connection Challenge to try and restore 40 islands by 2030 and getting the government of Panama and Palau and Chile to sign on to it. And part of that is also this setting the vision, setting the future and setting the scale to help some of these emerging countries replicate and build the capacity to be able to build their own visions that make sense within those contexts and those communities and helping them achieve that. So I think there's you know, so many different challenges and, and visions that are coming out there that are just continuing to build on this momentum that you know, is so well documented in this papers and the papers that we've just read. So I think one thing that I want to bring up next, you've all alluded to it and you've briefly touched on it, and that is people's role in this. So pretty much every episode of the Rewildology podcast, we can't talk about wildlife and conservation without talking about people because those two things are completely intertwined. So Dina, I would like to ask you, in your view, where do local communities fit into this story and how do they benefit when we do these eradications and restorations? What is there to gain for the people who are affected most by this? Right. Yeah, it's it's such an important piece. I mean, we couldn't do these efforts if it wasn't, you know, driven by people like it, it, I mean, that's that's the baseline of all this. You know, and uh, back to, to Mexico, most of their projects were done with local community members, local NGOs and government all working together to be able to actually address these issues. A lot of the islands have fishing communities or permanent inhabitants. And, you know, if you're not if you're not working with the people that are actually affected on the ground, like you, you just can't get this work done. And not only is it about the eradication, you talked about biosecurity. You know, you have in order to, to do an eradication and have it succeed, you have to make sure the invasive species doesn't come back. And so it's it's really all about the local community. I mean, no, nothing else to say like, yeah, we, we want to to keep our land like this. You know, we want to protect what we've already protected and keep invasive species out. And so I think the, the more and more islands that are worked on that have people on them, you know, the more this messaging will will get across, you know, people see this problem all over the world. It's not confined to just even that number of islands that we've been able to identify. So it's really that kind of bottom up movement of people being interested in being able to to use this tool is really, really important. You know, but at, at the same time, you know, funding is really important. So if people don't might want to do eradicate invasive species from islands, but if you don't have the money or the capacity to do so, it just won't happen. And so I think that that's another you know huge next step is we we know what islands have. Well, we actually don't know all the islands that have invasive species. Like that's a, an important you know biogeographic question, but we can estimate it. You know, Nick said we know that approximately eighty percent of all archipelagos have rats on them. We know that islands with highly threatened species, we know where invasive species occur with them. But but in any case, you know, if we don't have the funding to get those projects off the ground, if we don't put the tools into people's hands, these projects can't be done. So it's kind of just a call for, you know, not just, you know, local support, national support, and also international funding where possible to help support these projects. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think communities really are first and foremost for all of these. I mean, even island conservation as a nonprofit, we don't own any islands. And all of these things are done to help support the local projects. And I think a great example of that is Floriana Island back on the Galapagos. Uh, there's more than 50, you know, IUCN listed species that occur on that island. 
there's introduced rats, cats, and mice that are on the on the island that are impacting all those species. But there's also a community of at least 100 people that live on the island. And a huge part, and it's been you know, almost a decade in planning, is to understand you know, what are the impacts of those invasive species to the biodiversity. But also there's farmers and people that grow food that are impacted by rats you know their 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 food crops that they rely on either to sell or or to to to, to eat day to day are impacted by rats and their and the tourism's you know as similarly as you described earlier of you know people coming out to the island they want to see biodiversity but if you're not seeing the floriana mockingbird or some of the medium tree finch or some of the other species that are out there that's that's highly impactful and when we talk about implementing these projects from the community perspective, there's whole life changes that they need to make to be able to implement these projects. Things like how do you store your food waste? How do you go about recycling? Or you know how do you manage responsibly manage your pets so that they don't impact these things? Or what are the impacts to water quality? And so to be able to do all these kinds of projects, there are some very day-to-day behavioral changes that the community needs to buy into to be able to make sure that the project is successful. And so you know, all of these projects are very largely community driven, especially on islands where people are living there. And it's kind of, again, building the momentum, building the enabling conditions and getting those short term versus long term benefits to be understood so that these things can really move forward. Yeah, that was awesome. Perfect answer. So, Nick, let's shift to you for a second. So I'm feeling super inspired. You all have just given me so much information. Like I want to do everything that I possibly can to help in any way, but I don't live on an island. I am literally as far away from the ocean as you can possibly imagine. I'm in the Rocky Mountains, USA. Like that's not, you don't get further away. So I'm not near an island. I don't make a lot of money where I can't donate a whole bunch of funds. There's like all of these things that I can't do. And maybe a listener might feel the same way. So what can we, what can I, what can the amazing person listening right now as a community, what can we do? to help with this work, to move forward. If we could take away one thing, like, like what is that? Great question. And I love questions like these. And I'm sure some of your, you know, your listeners are going to be maybe they're early stage career conservationists and scientists. Maybe they're retired and they live by the coast or who, who knows? I'm not sure who your listenership are, but I do know that just doing what you're doing right now, becoming educated and opening yourself up to new narratives, to new stories. If islands haven't been a part of that, then I'd encourage you to learn. Just learning is is the key. You know, these are the initial sparks that give you the opportunity to understand about our massive world and the opportunities that lie there. Read about islands, whether it's as as old as sort of Darwin's cornerstone book that's influenced all of us in ecology and science, or whether it's something a little bit more modern, you know, whether it's a, a travel story to, to islands, this is these are some of the easiest ways to open yourselves up to islands. And we, we'd be happy to provide to, I'm sure between the three of us, we can throw a few, a few suggested readings out there. And then what, you know, watch this space. When we look at conservation and it's not hard to see some of the more inspiring stories and some of the things that give us hope are on islands. 
predator-free New Zealand 2050, the Island Ocean Challenge, there's a Micronesia Challenge 2030, all of these types of big picture ambitious goals. These are opportunities to see change in our lifetimes. Learn about these and, and follow them because I know that it's hard sometimes. We all have it, all four of us probably have it. I'm sure many of your readers do it. You open up the paper, it's like, oh God, one more thing. But Islands offer stories of hope. And so I think that's a place where your listeners will enjoy having islands as a part of their, their, their regular feature. And if you have the capacity or if you are living on an island or you, you can visit islands, visit islands. These are some of the most amazing places on the planet. And so you can feel things and see things and hear things that you might not otherwise get the opportunities to experience. The cacophony of a seabird colony, the overwhelming smell of a seal harem and watching rare birds that exist nowhere else in the world fly through your vision. It's just, it, there's opportunities there. And when you think about island natural history, there, there's a lot of islands within islands. And so in the US, mountaintops are often islands within islands. And so some of the same principles, some of the same conservation thinking and strategies lend themselves to mountaintops, to freshwater ecosystems and more. But those are stories for another day. Yeah. I mean, and I, I would add that too. I mean, I think the problem of invasive species is a really big one. And it's one that, you know, almost anyone, uh, whether they're on an island or not, can see in their own backyards. You know, if they look at, you know, pay, att pay attention to the birds and other animals that are around you, what things might be impacting those species. And, you know, Nick talked earlier about biosecurity. You know, for your listeners, travel with intention. Understand the potential consequences of your actions, not just to islands, but even when you're traveling from state to state. I mean, there's invasive plant species, there's Burmese pythons and pets that have been introduced. There's a whole variety of things that are impactful to all of us every day, no matter where we live. And we all have a responsibility to understand those and do our part to try and stop the spread of those things. Island is a really great example that really drives home what we stand to lose. But those same things we can stand to lose on continental systems and continents are the place where we don't have a lot of the tools to do this right now. We might not have them for 50 to 100 more years to address some of these invasions on islands. So the best thing that we can do is prevent them before we need to do the, the removal. And that's a responsibility that all of us as people that inhabit planet Earth have a responsibility to try and, and you know, be responsible about that and, and stop those introductions and invasions. Yeah, that was absolutely perfect. Well, Dave, Dina, and Nick, I am so honored and so privileged to sit down with you three and share your amazing work. And I cannot wait to get this out and share with the whole community and then as well as follow up and maybe even have future episodes with all of you or one of you and just keep us in the know. Obviously, this is a very important space to watch. And so everybody, this is not the first time you're going to hear from these three. But again, thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Talk about an amazing conversation with these three incredible scientists, right? If you feel inspired, be sure to check out all of the resources listed in this episode's show notes to see how you can support island conservation, the Nature Conservancy, and Pacific Rim Conservation. 
All right, I know I promised you all a list of everything that we tackled while the show was silent in August. First, though, I want to explain why I decided to slam the brakes and pause releasing episodes for a whole month. To be fully transparent, I felt that I had reached my max capacity with the show and started reaching out, asking for help on how I could take things to the next level. To help me get through this glass ceiling, I got in touch with some amazing podcast gurus that gave me great advice on where to take the show, and I pre-recorded recorded an entire series based on the knowledge that they shared with me. Well, after polling all of you, I learned that most of you don't prefer series slash seasons and like the current releasing schedule of random topics every week. So after having created this whole plan, I realized that it wasn't what you wanted. And so I blew it up, took a break and figured out what to do next. So in the month of August, the podcast grew by 100%. And now I have the wonderful Heather Bailey as part of the Rewildology team to help me with the tech side of the show. Audio, video, sound, YouTube, etc. She and I have so many big visions planned that we'll announce to you all as soon as they're put together. Also, I finally took the time to build an entire resources section on the Rewildology website. In this section, you'll find a recommended reading list, all of the organizations and projects that have been featured on the show, and a huge resource article for anyone else that would like to launch their own nature podcast. I will soon be releasing a solo episode all about conservation travel and will include tips, tricks, resources, everything that can help you plan your next adventure and it will be put in this section of the website. Next, all episodes are finally organized by region and topic. So now if you'd like to hear every episode from one part of the world or about, say, marine ecosystems, you can get a snapshot of everything the show has released about your topic of interest. Lastly, there are new ways to support the show. This podcast doesn't have any corporate sponsors. And so now if you'd like to help fund the podcast and keep these stories on the airwaves, you can make a secure donation to the show through PayPal. While on the website, you can also purchase a piece of swag and show your Rewildology love. As a reminder, at least 10% of anything that this podcast makes will go directly to our conservation partners. And those are all of the updates that I can share with you as of now. I wish I could spill the beans about everything else that we're working on, but I think this is a great place to start. Again, thank you all for being a part of the Rewildology community, and I can't wait to see where the show is in another year and a half. Hey, thanks again for listening to this episode of Rewildology. If you like what you heard, hit that subscribe button to never miss a future episode. Do you have a cool environmental organization, travel story, or research that you'd like to share? Let me know at rewildology.com. Until next time, friends, together we will rewild the planet. <laughs>